to greet you this morning and express my desire that you all have and are having a Merry Christmas on this the celebration of our Lord's birth. I ask if you would please take a copy of the scriptures and open them to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. When Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, he asked a most profound and searching question, most important question. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, the Son of God, who am I? What do men say? And the disciples responded, some say that you're John the Baptist, Others say you are Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus, I think, fixing his eyes upon these men, his disciples, asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, responded that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And then Christ expressed to Peter, He said, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Christian faith and Christian hope rest upon Christ alone. Not upon my experiences. There's a saying sometimes about certain places that if you don't like the weather now, hang around a couple of hours, you'll, it'll change, it'll shift, it'll be something different. Thus are our experiences in life, they're very capricious. They change on a whim. One minute I can feel good and know, I think, in, in my mind, in my heart, I express the love of God for me and the next. It's like, where has God gone? And if you're a believer, you know this because you have experienced this. So our faith rests not upon my experience. It does not rest on my works or activities for they are insufficient. Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. So it's not what I may do or position I may hold or how many dear little ladies I help across the street or whatever. That is not the basis of the Christian faith and eternal hope. Nor is it on morality. How good I am. I'm better than they are. Therefore, when God weighs the balance, I know I'll come out ahead. Nor is it on good attentions. Soon, next Lord's Day, it'll be the first Sunday, and many of us may begin the new year with good intentions. And we know how long those good intentions will last. And proverbially, you know where they lead. 
So it's not based on good intentions. What one believes, therefore, about Christ is everything. This question Jesus asked really is the summary of the Christian faith, upon what it's based on. Who do you say that Christ Jesus is? And based on that, and the proper answer to that, um, rest all of our hope, um, our faith, our anticipations, our expectations, all on that question. In December, we have been going through Isaiah 9, 6 in a series of messages considering primarily verse 6 and the titles given there to Jesus Christ our Lord. We read in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's bow for prayer. Father, for Your Word we are grateful. Holy Spirit, for Your leading men, guiding them along to pen the words of life. This is not the private interpretation of someone of old, but this is indeed the very Word of God, able to divide asunder um, the very being, our very beings. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless your word this day as it is proclaimed. I ask that you would bless me to proclaim it rightly. That Christ indeed would be exalted and we would have the answer to that question of questions. Who do we say that Jesus is? And in our proper answering of that, may we find increased faith, our hope stirred up, and may we find rejoicing and worshiping in Jesus Christ our Lord and in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Our purpose in this series of messages then, in light of what I just said, in light of Isaiah penning these words, our purpose is to present Christ. That's what we want to do. And in that, we hope that believers will be strengthened, their hope will be encouraged. We hope that it will help us to celebrate this day properly. And we pray that God would be pleased to use it to convert those who do not believe and cannot answer correctly the question, who is Christ? I want to begin my thoughts this morning as the other brothers have done and have done a good job 
But I want to begin by noticing the context of our passage. I think that's always important. Some of you have heard some of this. Some of you have not heard some of this. So I want to uh, rehearse briefly something of the context of Isaiah 9. I want to do that geographically. I want to do that what I'll call the biblical context and also the redemptive context. And then we'll move on uh, from there. Geographically, go ahead with the first. Thank you. Geographically, Palestine, that area historically known as the Promised Land, was uh, militarily and economically a strategic area in the ancient world. It was basically at the, uh, maybe the beginning or the end, I suppose it depends on which way you were going, at the, of the Fertile Crescent. And the way you traveled from the east to the west was you followed that purple area. It was called the Fertile Crescent. Now if you can see Judah uh, down here on kind of the bottom left, there's Egypt, there's Judah. The Promised Land formed a critical land bridge that connected South Egypt, East would be eventually the Persians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and then further West, the Greeks, the Romans. Whoever, whatever army is marching, this area is the land bridge. This is important militarily. This was important commercially. Uh, so it formed that bridge that connected Africa, Europe, and Asia. It's all right there. So whatever nation controlled that area basically controlled commerce, or they had a large print on commerce of that day. They could project strong military power. Thus, when you read, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, where it talks about, uh, it begins by saying, but there will be no gloom for her, for who was in anguish? In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Uh, if you look on the map on the right toward the very top, the northern part of that, you'll see the land of Naphtali, the land of Zebulun. So any conquering army moving in from the west or from the east, those are the first countries they're going to hit. They're going to take them. That's Isaiah 9.1 begins with that observation. So we have this strategic piece of land geographically. Biblically, let's consider the context. According, and go ahead and move it through, Stuart, thank you. According to God's purpose and providence, David, the youngest, humble, shepherd son of Jesse, was chosen by God to replace Saul and made king of Israel. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can read of this. Under David, Israel is transformed from a confederacy of tribes into one of the most strong powers economically and militarily of his time. It's called the Golden Era of Israel. And this is under the leadership of David, chosen by God to replace Saul. He removes his spirit from Saul. Saul is like the fodder that's cast aside, and God 
puts his imprimatur on David. This is my chosen man. Now, after David, you know that Israel will eventually divide into two kingdoms. This starts under his son Solomon, and because of his sinfulness, God says that he will rend the nation in two. So eventually Israel will be divided into two kingdoms, and both of those kingdoms, both the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, will eventually suffer devastating defeat and humility. That brings us to the Davidic covenant, which is the context of our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In these maps, what you see is basically, you can read what it says, the kingdoms of David, and you can see where David expanded the kingdom and the power, the, the power he exercised, the control, both military and economically. Uh, you can see that. And then you can see how it shrank by the time of Isaiah. It's not nearly as, not nearly as impressive, and it certainly doesn't carry the power economically or militarily by the, the time we get to Isaiah's day and what we're reading in Isaiah 9. Now, in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, that is, I think, the, the context, what we call the biblical context of our passage today. O. Palmer Robertson, writing about this, notes, the Davidic covenant centers on the coming kingdom. It serves as the formalizing bond by which God's kingdom comes among His people. God promised David that, this is 2 Samuel, verse 16, God promised David that your throne shall be established forever. And the promise of that covenant is that David's lineage will have someone on the throne eternally. Second Samuel also we find in verse 14 that this person will have a special relationship with God the Father. For it says in Second Samuel uh, verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And we read of this special relationship that God will have with this promised king who will uh, be on the throne of David. Now Scripture bears out that this king, this son, is none other than Christ Himself. In Psalm 2 we read, As for me, God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, if that's not clear enough, we go to Hebrews and it gives us the New Testament interpretation of that. Hebrews 1 verses 5 and 6, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? The answer to that is none. None of them. And the whole argument of Hebrews as it begins is there's no one worthy. No one can do this but Christ, the Son of God. He is the only one. There's not. He goes through the prophets. He goes through Abraham. He goes through them all. And at the end of it is Christ. It's Christ. 
But I read on now in Hebrews. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Yes, God has many children born again, adopted, but not begotten. Not of the same essence and being and nature of God. He is God, Emmanuel. And again we go to Hebrews. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Oh, I just read that, didn't I? In the Davidic covenant. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and we've sang this today, and we love to sing it, and it ought to be sung. Let all God's angels worship him. The covenant sign, I think, of the Davidic covenant is the perpetual throne and the king of peace who sits on that throne. That is the perpetual sign of the kingdom. Sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision, I suppose of the Mosaic would be the law, but here we have the promise of a king of the lineage of David and of the kingdom that he will establish. Now we know that Christ, and by the way, having said that, turn over to Matthew chapter 4 for just a moment. One more evidence of what I'm saying here. Let's just read what Christ, uh, well, what Matthew says and then Christ uh, pronounces as, uh, at, at the end of this pronouncement. This is Matthew 4, verse number 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of oh, Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a light. If I want to know what Isaiah 9 one's about, I go here and it says this is what it's about. Christ left this area, went to this area, and He is the light. They see it. The way of the sea, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Christ has come. And from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we know that Christ established His kingdom. We know that by the power He exercised. In Luke eleven twenty, we read, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Repent, it is coming, it has come to you. We know this by His possessions. Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, When I saw Him, John said, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Who has the power of death? We can say God, but we say in this world, the Scripture tells us it is the devil who is our enemy who has the power of death. And Christ says to John, don't, don't fear, stand up. 
I am He that was and is and is to come. And I have the keys. I have the power over Satan. I have the power over death. I am the living, reigning Lord is what He's saying to John. And we know it by His position. I know it by His power. I know it by His possessions. And I know it by His position. Revelation 1.8 I am the Alpha and Omega says the Lord God who is and was and is to come. The Almighty. That is His position. And if that's not enough we could go to Revelation 5 and just read how all of creation worships this King. Now, that's something of the biblical context. Now let's notice something of the redemptive context. In Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, David's lineage is sitting on the throne. His son has come. His grandsons are there. His great-grandsons are His lineage is on the throne. Oh, is this not the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? But Judah is under attack. From the south... Judah has lost the seaport at Eloth, which would be at the, well, we can't even see it on that map. It would be at the very tip of the map on the right down there. It's that finger of the Red Sea. There's a seaport. It's a critical port for, for commerce. They've lost that. They don't have that, that ability. They don't have that. Someone else is in control of this now. From the southwest, the Edomites are invading them. From the west, the Philistines are raiding into their country. And from the north, the Syrian-Israel alliance is crushing them. Judah has suffered unthinkable losses when I read Isaiah 9. In one day, 120,000 men of valor, including the king's son, are killed on the, on the battlefield. One day. Think about that, you guys in the military that have served. What would we do as a country if we lost 120,000 in one day? My gracious. And in addition to that, there have been a total of 200,000 hostages taken. They have taken out spoil from Judah. And what does King Ahaz decide to do? Bow, repent, ask God for mercy, quote the Davidic covenant and say, oh Lord, please come fulfill it. What does he do? He forsakes the Lord of hosts. He forms an alliance with the Assyrians, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians, which is a nation, country, can't see it on these maps, but above it to the north on that fertile crescent. He pays this mercenary army by robbing the temple, the house of God, of its gold and its value. I said temple. Yeah, it would have been then. Make sure I'm right. Of robbing the house of God of its value, valuables, of its gold, silver, etc., well, the Assyrians sweep the field with Israel, with the, with the Assyrians' help. Judah, all but uh, Jerusalem, of course, that's even later on, will be captured. 
And Ahaz, because of the great victory, institutes idolatry of the idols of the enemy. And he closes the house of God. Now imagine coming up to the house of God and there's being boards over the windows and doors. It's closed. There's a beautiful cathedral in Kiev called St. Andrews. I've seen it, been in it a few times. It's, it's, it's on this old cobblestone street and you have to wander up this road and sitting on top of this hill is this magnificent cathedral. And I've had the opportunity of seeing it and going into it and all that through the years. But I remember going one year and it's closed. And they had scaffolding outside and it's like, oh, that's awful. I mean, I know they have to maintain, but still, that's a small picture of what Ahaz has done. He closes it. And you know that ideas and actions have consequences, don't you? And what are the consequences of what Ahaz does? We talk about... um, you know, the law of effects and how you, you, you push against something, you get equal force coming back. There's, there are consequences for what Ahaz does here. He entangles Judah in false worship and idolatry. He incurs a crushing annual tribute that is to be paid to the Assyrians. Every year they must pay this tribute. And he advances the downward spiral of what already had begun, say really under Solomon. He advances that downward spiral, propels it forward, that will culminate in the subjugation and eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 by the Romans. Because they will go from the Assyrians that will conquer to the Babylonians who will conquer to the Persians who will conquer back to the West to the Greeks who will conquer to the Romans who will conquer and raise the city leaving not a stone upon a stone at the end of the day. And so Ahaz rather than turning to the living God turns from the living God And yet when I get to Isaiah and this terrible devastation is being uh, uh, carried out on the nation, the country of Judah, Isaiah 9 is not, oh, woe is me. It's rejoicing. Celebrating. It's worshiping. I mean, it's hard to read this chapter without just Start singing the doxology or something. You just want to praise God when you read this chapter. He calls for rejoicing, not uh, gloom or doom. And there is a pronouncement of peace that we've already looked at in chapter 9, verse 1. And we've seen in uh, Matthew chapter 4 where light comes into this region that has been dark and, and down. But then we notice in verses 2 and 3 of the passage, notice the past tense. It reminds me of Romans 8, mm-hmm. who God has foreknown, He has predestinated, and all those that we read, everything's past tense there, even glorified. And you read this passage, you go, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen 
Well, not right now they haven't. Right now they're under the hand and dominion of a awful kingdom, king, and army. But it says, Those that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of dark deepness, on them light has shined. Well, we went to Matthew 4, we saw that. You have multiplied the nation. Well, not now. You actually shrunk. You increased its joy. 120,000 killed. Surely it's got to touch everybody in just about in Judah. 200,000 taken captive. Don't think it's a time of happiness. They rejoice before you. As with the joy at the harvest. Maybe that's kind of keys you in. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. And then we have, after, after noticing the past uh, tense uh, there, you notice in verses 4 through 6, the three fours, F-O-R. There's three fours here. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior. Verse 6, for to us. Four, four, four. Dale Ralph Davis writes, The joy, verse 3, and the freedom, verse 4, um, are possible because of a divine arms embargo, verse 5. Yahweh doesn't merely eliminate bows and spears and tanks and bombers, Psalm 46, 9, but even sends up in smoke the footwear, the blood-soaked clothes of individual troops. Even combat boots and ammunition vests will be toast. And in addition to that, verses 6 and 7, we have the climactic culmination, I think, focusing on this prophecy of the Lord, of the promised Messiah. And what does He establish? A kingdom of everlasting peace. Peace. Isn't that a precious commodity? Peace. So we have considered somewhat the geographical, biblical, and redemptive context. So now let's look at the titles a little closer. And I know that again, um, other brothers have gone through these and I don't intend to be long on anyone, but I think since it's the last sermon on the passage, it's proper I make reference to the other titles, and, and also make some comment about the Prince of Peace. His name shall be called. Where do you read in the New Testament, Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor? You don't. Mighty God. Well, we can go to passages and go, well, this proves His deity, but He's not called that. Sam Storms writes, When the prophet says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, etc., he does not mean that Jesus actually bears these names as if his mother Mary might have said, Go tell Wonderful Counselor that dinner's ready. No, that's not, that's not what... He's not called that. Not actually is physically called that by name. Storms writes, Rather these names or titles are descriptive of his character and personality. These names are representative of who the promised king of peace is. 
They describe his attributes and the activities of the Messiah. Think, for example, in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John at the temple healed the lame beggar and all the people are amazed and they come running to the feet of Peter and John and it's like they would worship them. And Peter says to them, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. And we go down to verse 14. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. He has the keys of death and hell. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's the name. What the name represents. And I come to Isaiah 9. What do these names represent? Well, and then, Let's just begin with Wonderful Counselor. I had some other things here, but I'll leave that out. Wonderful Counselor, Pelay Yoetz. E.J. Young, a scholar on Isaiah, writes, Not merely is the Messiah wonderful, but He Himself is a wonder through and through. And you think, here is the eternal God, a wonder who comes in the flesh, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, we say it all the time, but wonder of wonders, who lives and keeps the law of God perfectly, without stain or mar or blemish in any way, wonder, wonderful, who lays down His life on the cross by His blood, redeeming His people, wonderful, He's a wonder. Who can do that but Christ the Lord? Who is buried and three days later rises from the dead. Wonder of wonders. He has defeated death. He ascends and they see Him go up in glory. Wonder. Oh, what a wonder to have seen that. And now He is in session. He rules. Wonder of wonders. He is wonderful. The primary result of Isaiah 9 and 6 is all in worship. John Gill wrote, He is wonderful in His person, that He should be God and man in one person, and have two natures so different from each other united in Him. He is fully God. He's fully man. Wonder of wonders. Charles Wesley, in the hymn that we uh, love to sing and sang, uh, expresses this, this awe, this worship of this wonder. He says, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, a wonder, 
And if that doesn't cause us to cry out from our hearts as the angels did on that night, God help us. And Wesley also wrote, "'Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the first-born seraph tries." And don't you picture that? We read Isaiah 6 and they're flying around and they have the wings covering their eyes and their feet and they're flying with two and they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And we know from John, this is Christ on the throne that this is expressing, uh, Isaiah 6 is expressing. But, but, remember back, at one time in the beginning, there was angels. No. There was nothing, there was God and nothing else. And ex nihilo, from nothing, God creates. He didn't borrow dust. He didn't have to go out and find a collapsing universe. There's nothing. And then he creates seraphs. And the first seraph is trying as he flies around, trying with all his might to describe and worship this wonder. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In vain he tries. <laughs> because he can't express the love divine. Not fully. Wesley goes on to say, To sound the depths of love divine, Tis mercy all. Let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. Some places we can go, and we can go so far, and we have to go, The result is just, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And this wonder is given to us as counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. Albert Barnes writes, he is ex- it is this title, counselor is expressive of, expressive of great wisdom and of qualifications to guide and direct the human race. I listened, I, I like to listen when I can to audible books, when I travel or whatever, or, I have to be on the tractor. I like to listen to audible books. And I listened to a biography on uh, Harry S. Truman. It's been some months ago. And uh, enjoyed listening to the biography and learning more about him. But he was 60 years old when he received the news that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had died and that he would be sworn in as the president. And he goes over and meets um, Mrs. Roosevelt. And he asks her, he says, what can I do for you? And she looks at him and says, that's the wrong question. It's not what I, what you can do for me, but what can I do for you, Mr. President? And the way hit him, bam. And he said, when they told me yesterday what had happened, I felt like the moon, the stars, and all the planets had fallen on me because all of a sudden he has the weight of the office. Who can carry the weight of this office of the Prince of Peace? and establish an everlasting kingdom of peace. Who can do this? Oh, the way to that office. How will he establish this kingdom? Who can do this? One. And his name is Jesus Christ the Lord, the Son of David. To sit upon the throne of David requires wisdom and knowledge and understanding and empathy and power and justice. And Christ has all of that. 
In Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor, verse 7, establishes and upholds his kingdom with justice and righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 11, he does not judge by outward appearances, but with righteousness he judges. He is wonderful counselor. He is all of these things. He is our advocate. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this wonderful counselor, advocate, declares God the Father to us perfectly. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes that my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Now that would be an awful situation, wouldn't it? Standing for your life in front of a judge and all your acquaintances and friends bid you adieu. Good luck, they say. Paul wrote, when I, at my first defense, no one came to stand with me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He is wonderful counselor advocate. And there is in that reality both positive and negative. The negative is he knows your and my hypocrisy. And he knows my deep sins, my besetting sins, my thoughts, my words, my intentions. But the positive is he's my advocate. who guides and helps in prayer, repentance, and worship, most of all, redemption, salvation through His blood. He is the wonderful Counselor. He is the mighty God, El Giver. He alone is fully God and fully man, and only one who is mighty and one who is God can meet our needs. No one else. John 16:33 Jesus said in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world This is mighty God El giver Ephesians 6 when we're faced with all that we have to deal with in this battle we're in the enemy that we're up against the crowning exhortation is be strong in the flesh no be strong in the Lord in the Lord I wanted to go to Mark 4. I'm not, but I'll just give you a quote from Calvin on that. That's where Christ calms the sea because His disciples are scared to death. And He just simply says, Peace, be still. And when he gets, when it's over with, they, they are in fear and wonder, going, what kind of person is this? That even the wind and the waves listen to Him. And Calvin writes, If you find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glorifying will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. If that's all He is, 
Who do you say He is? If that's all He is, then you have no hope. None. And your faith is vain. Calvin goes on, But if He shows Himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on Him with safety because God, the mighty God alone, is able to answer prayers, to grant courage where no courage is to be found, to strengthen, to edify, to build up the believer, to save to the uttermost. Yes, the blood of Jesus Christ can save you and wash away your sins and preserve you into life eternal because of who He is. He is God Almighty. And not an ounce of blood is shed in vain. So if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. God does. And I'll tell you something else. The blood of Christ is worthy. And He is your advocate. He is the advocate of His people before the Father. And through Him, we are justified in His name. And we have hope. And that is the basis of faith and hope. It is not what I've experienced. It's not my piety. It's not my intentions. It is Christ Almighty God. He is everlasting Father. The ad is the words. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. In relationship to the Father and the Spirit, Christ is always, always, the begotten Son. He is nothing ever different than that. Pastor John dealt with that. But that's not what's being said here. This is in relation to us. For to us a Son is born. To us a Son is given. In relation to us, He is Father Progenitor. Author of eternal life. Creator of heaven and earth and of the new creation. He is the King of the endless kingdom of Shalom, of peace. He is the finisher, the guarantee, the preserver of salvation. His people are eternally redeemed and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now I'm going to just say one little drop, one little word here. I'm going to take just a little different tack with that one than, than sometimes we do. We often think of that as, well, the church is going to push out and push down the walls of hell. Well, I'm not going to argue with it. Perhaps there are other passages we could go to for that. But He has the keys. And what does that mean? That there is no end to His kingdom. The church of Jesus Christ is eternal. His kingdom is forever. And hell, death, will not retard it, stop it in any way. It goes on. And it goes on forever. Now that to me is a wonderful thought. How death itself and the gates of hell themselves have no power or being over Christ and His kingdom. Because after this world's long gone, His kingdom will stand. And Christ is King of Kings. Well, the Prince of Peace, Shalom, I just, very quickly, I know I'm not spending time on my part. Ha ha, guys, brothers. <laughs> but I'm trying. 
I think I have tried to bring it along to this, but we are to the Shalom, Sar Shalom. David's reign marked that, I mentioned that unprecedented time of peace, the era, the golden era of Israel. 2 Samuel 7, 1, we read, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. 7, 9, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies. 2 Samuel 7, 11, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is the promised lineage of David on the eternal throne, the kingdom of peace. The Davidic promise is a complete and everlasting kingdom of peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. And we could read the rest of the verse. But I want to come now to our closing applications. As in Isaiah's day, believers are surrounded by a horde of enemies. Brother Ryan read and gave you a bio of the hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And he wrote, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And Brother Ryan gave us the reason um, Longfellow felt that way. Death of wife, horrible injury of son, depression. He looked at the world around him and went, what is this? It's mocking reality. This declaration of peace. It mocks what I see, what I hear, what I experience. It's a mockery. What was it that God told the prophet Habakkuk? When Habakkuk just trembled at what was coming against them. He said, my bones shook when he understood what God told him was about to happen. And God said but the just shall live by their faith alone Paul repeats that and yet we want to live by experience or piety or my vision but it is said of our Lord and it is not changed you will live by faith and faith alone and if that faith is not right if it gets the incorrect answer to the question, who is Jesus? Well, there is no peace. But if it gets the right answer, if thy Father in heaven had revealed this to thee and not flesh and blood, then blessed are thou. For you will know eternal peace. Believers live by faith. Like Israel of old, we don't realize the fulfillment of all the promises. Not on this planet. Hebrews 11, verses 13 and following, we read, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but, and he's talking about the patriarchs, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they didn't receive it all. They said, I'm a stranger here. For they go on to say, for people who, the writer goes on to say, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. What are you seeking? A homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Don't you? Yes. That is a heavenly one. Isn't that what you seek? Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And Christ said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in Me. In My Father's house and My Father's city, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place. In My Father's mansion, there's many rooms if you want to go that way. But the point is, He's gone and He's preparing that city that's described for us in Revelation as it comes down. So it is with us. Second Corinthians chapter 4, we look not to the things that are seen. If I do that, what, what happens to the things that are seen? What's going to happen to this facility? We look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. That's what they sought. That's what we seek. As in Isaiah's day, in desperation, people seek other means of peace and salvation. Judah sought their answer in the Assyrians. They sought it in the Egyptians. They sought it in false gods, false worship. But they didn't find peace. They found destruction. Like the mythical fountain of youth, throughout the ages men have sought an utopia on this planet. Like the foolish men who built the Tower of Babel, people have sought peace away from the Prince of Peace. They've sought it in monuments of programs, of governments, of science, of family, of job. But all these kingdoms come to ruin. Why? Because this cosmos is cursed. It's under sin. And even it, according to the Apostle in Romans 8, it's just crying out, waiting for that day when Christ will renew all. The ground on which I am standing is cursed. Cursed be the ground for your sake. That curse is still there. The air I pull into my, I breathe, pull into my lungs is cursed air. It's not going. This is not going to last forever. The body I use to consume these graces of God, it's cursed. It will die. It will decay. 
But God Almighty, my advocate, the Prince of Peace, will resurrect it anew, glorious. Just as Ponce de Leon never found the magical waters he sought, those seeking peace away from the Prince of Peace will end up with nothing but the dust of dry futility. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And like Isaiah, we are witnesses to the madness and folly folly of humanity as they run after and seek peace, salvation, and meaning and hope in their life in all sorts of foolish avenues. Yet the gospel calls. Come, everyone. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Why do you spend your money? Why do you spend your time? Why would you spend your life seeking for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat. What is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And the prophet Isaiah, this is from Isaiah 55 I'm reading. And the prophet says, God through the prophet, excuse me, says, And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Back to our Davidic covenant and what this prince, who he is and what he's done. Do you hear the call? Have you answered the questions correctly? Do you hear the gospel call? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, believe and receive Christ and Christ alone. Would you be encouraged? Would you worship our Lord aright? Then cast your eyes, your hope and your faith on the Prince of Peace. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for these wonderful, marvelous declarations of our Savior. Fill our hearts with wonder and awe and worship. I pray through Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen.